We're continuing our message on the story this week, and uh, this is our second or third week that we're getting into the life of Jesus, and uh, there's never been a more pivotal person in, that has ever lived, obviously, than Jesus Christ. And uh, I'm glad we get an opportunity to spend several weeks on the person of who Jesus was, the life that he lived, and this week is going to be outstanding. I'm going to try my best not to steal Mark's sermon for next week, um, but at the same time, I, I have a message that I believe God's placed on my heart for a reason. We're going to watch a story that kind of synops or uh, a video that goes over this week's story. If you've uh, not had a chance to read it, chapter 23, No Ordinary Man, and then we'll get into the Word of God. So let's ch- watch this video. Going through this week's chapter and. Very grateful for Pastor Mark last week. I, I told him, hey, I just need to get away alone with God. So that's what he let me do. Um, so last week uh, on Saturday and Sunday, I just got alone with Jesus for a while. And I read through uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And if you've never read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, I encourage you to take some time this week and dig into it. Because it is just have some incredible truths, some incredible uh, life-altering things that we're going to get into here today. But I spent years and years as a youth pastor when I first started ministry, um, first in Selma as a youth leader, and then also in Orlando and Vincent. And one of the things I used to always counsel the guys I sat down with and the ladies, but I said, if you ever hear your boyfriend or girlfriend say, if you love me, then you will run. You do not want to be in a relationship that is manipulative and deceiving. Because whenever you hear the words, well, if you really love me, or if you love me, then you will do blank. Is that not just some dangerous things to hear in a relationship, you know? Because, I mean, that's just so, so manipulative, so like, man, I'm going to twist this dude's arm, and you, you get what you want through guilt and manipulation rather than true love and admiration. And yet, as I started studying this week, I realized that if you love me is one of the most key passages to disciples of Christ in the entire Word of God. Because they were spoken from our Creator God, Jesus Christ. You know, last week, Pastor John uh, challenged us with the question of who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus? Seeking Jesus. And I, I love listening to the message. If you don't go back and re-listen to a sermon on a Sunday, you're really missing out. Because you can only get so much the first time you listen to it, right? If you ever, Who's an Avengers fan in this room? Nobody? Wow. I love Marvel Avengers. And you, you can do it to other, other uh, movies and things as well. But if you go back and watch the first Marvel Avengers movie, and then that's the only time you ever watch it, and then you go and watch all the other different movies after that, if you go back and watch the first one again, all of a sudden you start to see how there were things that you never saw before, right? Because they all worked in together, and it's like, wow, I ne- you know, wow, they, put, they added this and they put that together. I really believe that's the same way a lot of times messages and sermons are, is there's a lot of times that we don't, when we don't go back and read it, when we don't go back and listen to these messages, man, we have the ability to go back and re-listen to these sermons time and time again and just dig in and meditate and get all we can out of them. And I think we're robbing ourselves when we don't do that. So let me encourage you to do that, first of all. 
But Pastor John just threw out, who is Jesus? What do you think of Jesus? And this morning, I really feel like um, I'm supposed to speak this morning to those people who call themselves Christians, who, who call themselves disciples of Christ. Whether you are or you're not, that's between you and God. But if you claim the name of Jesus, I feel like I'm, I'm supposed to speak to you this morning. And if you've ever heard me speak, uh, I've, I've come to love the word admonish. Because admonishing means is it's giving a warning, it's giving a... Uh, sometimes a rebuke, possibly, but what it's doing is it's doing that within the context of a relationship and out of love. It's somebody that you hold yourself accountable to somebody, kind of like a spouse does. You call out, man, if your kids are running across the road, you're going to admonish them to stop what they're doing, to give them a warning. Don't cross the road. It could get hurt, you know? And I kind of feel that's the heart and the spirit behind this is as we dig into the life of Jesus as disciples, we need to stop and listen and pay attention and not gloss over this week because the life of Jesus is so important. Like Pastor John talked about last week, the life of Jesus should be the model in which we step in and live each and every day of my life. Y'all agree with that? I mean, like we don't have, our boss is not the ultimate model. Pastor Mark is not the ultimate model. Jesus is the ultimate model of who we need to fashion our life over. Agreed? We good? Okay. That's a good baseline for us to start at. So as I finished up this message this week with my swollen, gigantic doughboy hand after getting stung, man, that was fun typing this week. Um, I feel like there was such a heaviness because I feel like the pastors at this church, and we take it seriously, but we have a responsibility to make sure that we are communicating God's Word in such a way that people hear it and understand it, because to understand God's word is to know how to put it into practice. I pray that we don't come in here, throw a lot of, throw a lot of, uh, a lot of fancy ideas at you or talk about a bunch of stories, but we give you practical knowledge that you can take and apply to your life. And I feel like that's the responsibility we have as pastors. If you read the story this week, it start, Jesus started talking about a story that I reference a lot when I talk to the leaders of CLF and different leaders in church about the sower and the seed. The sower goes out, he plants a bunch of seed out in the field. Some get choked out. Some never really take root because it's shallow. Some get eaten away, taken away by the cares of the world, the enemy, the deceptiveness of riches, all this story. And I encourage you to go read it in uh, Matthew chapter 12 and 13. And as I was reading it, I was like, God, what makes the soil good soil? Because I thought about it and I was like, I want to be the good soil. I want to be the guy that when God plants his word in me through a message, through reading his word, I want to be the one that takes that and reproduces that fruit 30 times, 50 times, 100 times like Jesus talked about. Am I the only one? Like, I want my life to reproduce into others. I mean, a life that truly means something, a life that truly matters is not one focused on yourself. It's about focusing on others. It's about feeding into others, right? And as disciples of Christ, we have that desire inside of us and the responsibility to feed our life and to help build and make disciples, according to Jesus, right? And so I just, I was, I, I just started wondering, I was like, God, what makes good soil? What makes it? And there was a few words in there. It said, they took the word, it was good soil, they took it and they understood the word. And that's why I, I pray that we take it seriously and I pray you walk away today understanding the Word of God because what makes good soil is someone who 
takes the Word and understands it. And as we dig into God's Word, the Spirit of the living God reveals His Word to us. It's not Pastor Mark, it's not Brian, it's not Pastor John. The Spirit of God is the one revealing His Word to you and to me. It's not just a commentary, it's not just you know this and that resource, it's the Spirit of the living God. Now, if we don't move from the intellectual knowledge into the practical asking ourselves, okay, God, how does this change me? How does this change my life? How does this change my actions, my attitudes, and my words? And we just let it be knowledge instead of practical application. Sorry if I'm losing you already. We're failing God, and we're failing other people who God has called us to change and to impact. And see, that was the difference between the soils. The soil that took God's word, understood it, applied it, produced fruit. Produced many, many times, not one or two times, 30, 50, 100 times. And yet, what happened to the soil? They received, other soil received it, and yet the world, getting their their eyes on the deceptiveness of riches, the troubles and tribulations of life, caused it to tear away. It was those who took the Word of God, understood it, and applied it to their life that made a difference. And it truly, if we don't... It makes me believe we want and take just enough of an understanding of God's Word to give ourselves a spiritual inoculation or a spiritual spinal blo- uh, nerve block. Right? What is a nerve block? It, it cuts the nerves off so we don't feel the pain, Right? so we can operate, so we can function. I know of a lot of people have had the nerve block, but the problem with the nerve block is it's not permanent, is it? It doesn't fix the problem. And so many times when we read the Word of God, we're searching for a nerve block that heals the pain without fixing the problem. That's not being good soil. And so I'm like, a true knowledge... And understanding of God's Word creates three things. It creates a realization of our sinfulness. It helps us understand how sinful we are. It helps us understand the grace of God and what that means. We sung about God's grace today. It helps us understand what the grace of God means, through, like Ephesians 2, 8-10, through 10, which we'll get to. And it also produces a desire to live a, God, or a, to live a life of good deeds out of a gratitude for what Christ has done for us. And I'm not talking about, oh, well, when I read, uh, you know, Matthew 5 through 7 and read about the Sermon on the Mount, I feel a responsibility like I, God has given me rules to follow. No, no, it's not that. It's as we understand, I mean, truly understand, not intellectually, but spiritually and, and with our emotions, understand who Jesus is, what he's done for you, and get the whole picture of who God is the more we want to live a life of good deeds out of gratitude because we understand what God has done for us. Those who have celebrated being sober for months or years and you understand the life God has saved you from. In my case, it was saved me from a life full of pornography, addicted to pornography. At 13 years old, I tried to take my life. I know what God has done for me, that what He's rescued me from, who I used to be, That's why I want to live a good life of good deeds, because I want to honor Him and give back what He's given me. And as we understand who God is, the more those things will produce and grow inside of us. So, all of that to say, I 
I, I want to dig into the Sermon on the Mount and an overall understanding. And so if you're a believer and if you're a disciple of Christ, if, you some, if you're someone who calls yourself a Christian, I have a question for you this morning. What does the fruit of your life look like? What is the fruit of your life? If, if I were to go to talk to your spouse, your roommate, how about your child? If I were to talk to your coworker or your boss, would their description of who you are and the life you live every day line up with God's Word? And the things that Jesus outlined on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7. through 7. Would they say, man, if I were to read Matthew 5 through 7 to your spouse, would they say, yeah, that sounds like my husband. That sounds like my wife. What if I took it to your roommate and say, hey, you know, does this describe Arian and read Matthew 5, 6, and 7? Or what about your child? If I pull your child out of, out of children's church and read them this, or if they're teenagers, if I pulled them down from youth one night and I said, I'm going to read them, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, I said, would you, would you say this is a description of your mom, of your dad? Why does that matter? Matthew 7, uh, chapter 7, verse 16 through 20, this is what it says. It says, you will know them, this is the words of Christ on the Sermon on the Mount. It says, you will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I'm pretty sure that means we need, we need to be the people producing good fruit, right? I don't want the Spirit of God to cut me down, throw me into the fire, right? That doesn't sound like a spiritual inoculation. That doesn't mean, oh, did they, did they pray the prayer of salvation? It says, does, is their life producing fruit that's reflective of being a good tree? Because if not, it's going to get cut down and thrown to the fire. Verse 20 says, therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. So how do we know if we're truly followers of Christ? It's pretty simple. Are we obeying the commands in the word of God? It's really that simple. Really that simple. Are we obeying the commands of the Bible? As I read through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it just struck me of, Am I obeying the simple commands of Scripture? James 1, 21 through 22 says, So get rid of all filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word God has planted into your hearts, for it has the power to save your souls. But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourself. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And if we don't, who are we fooling? Are we pulling one over on God? No, he says, James says, we're only fooling ourselves. So let me ask you, last week, Pastor John laid out a message of who Christ is and finding Jesus. Did we do this week what Pastor John outlined in that message? Did we? Or did we simply hear it and go about our lives? Tomorrow morning, 
Will you take your notes? Will you get your podcast? Will you go through the Word of God? Will you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7? Or will you do what it says? Or are we simply listening to a message to fool ourselves? Why are we here? We're not here to check a box. We're not here to listen to a message. We're here to allow the Spirit of God to speak and reveal things in our lives that do not line up with His Scripture and to carry them out. John 14, 23 through 24, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the words which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. 1 John 2, 3 through 6 says, By this we know that we have come to know him, Jesus, If we keep his commandments, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a a what? A liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. And by this, we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought to also walk in the same manner that he, Jesus, walked. 1 John 5, 2-3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. 2 John 1, 6. And this is love that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandments just as you have heard from the beginning that you should walk in it. There's more. John 15, 10 through 14. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you. He wants his joy, the joy of the creator of the universe in you. And that your joy may be full, not partial, full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do that I command you. Do we get a picture here yet? Is loving Jesus coming to church? Is loving Jesus just reading our Bible? Loving Jesus is doing what he said to do. Is it simple? Yes. Is it easy? No. Why do you think he sent the Holy Spirit to empower us to do it? Because he knew it wouldn't be easy. And he also knew we couldn't do it on our own. That's why he gave us his word. He didn't just give us a list of rules and say, hey, do this, do this, do this, do this. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. He didn't do that. He gave us stories. He gave us parables. He gave us testimonies. He gave us rules. All of those things work together to give us an understanding of who he is and who he's called us to be in action. See, here's the problem. The word of God has removed any kind of excuse that we have for our inaction. It's removed the, uh, the, the excuse that we have of being spiritually lazy. I'm reading a book right now that is absolutely incredible. It's a, I mean, it's a tail kicker. If you need a good jolt spiritually, you're feeling dry, it's, it's one of these books you need to read. It's called End of Me by Kyle Eidelman. And it talks through the Beatitudes. And just a phenomenal book. But one of the things I love that he talked about, he said, emptiness is a cry to be filled. 
And too many times believers are so filled that there's no room for God to fill them. There's no emptiness. I want to read you a quote. I handed it to Jenny for her to look at, but I'm going to read you a quote. Has anybody ever heard of the lady named, uh, what is her name, Mother Teresa? Have you ever heard of her? Okay, a few people. This is what she said, and this is not like last year, okay? She's not dealing with 21st century in Facebook, right? So this is what she wrote. She said, The spiritual poverty of the Western world is much greater than the physical poverty of our people in Calcutta. You in the West have millions of people who suffer such terrible loneliness and emptiness. These people are not hungry in a physical sense, but they are in another way. They know they need something more than money, yet they don't know what it is. What they are missing really is a living relationship with God. And how empty is our world today of hope, of joy, of peace, of assurance? Why? I think one of the reasons is because we are so dang full of everything else. I've never, never, never in my entire life wondered if I will have enough food to live. I never have. And how many times do we get trapped in this prideful thing when somebody asks us how we're doing? We're either tired or busy. How can God's Spirit and the Spirit of the living God fill what is not empty? We have to get to the place where we are desperate. We need Him. Because that need, that emptiness, drives us to the Word of God for more than just a pat on the back or a self-confidence that we did our due diligence spiritually this week and then we can get on in our lives. There becomes a hunger and a desperation for who God is in our lives. And when he fills that hole and when he begins to empower his people, that spurns them into action. You do not see the Spirit of the living God coming on to anybody in the Bible and them then in turn doing nothing. What happens every single time when the Bible talks about the Spirit of God comes on somebody? They did something. And yet our schedules are so full, we're so busy. At the end of the day, we are dry, empty, and tired. And we have nothing to give anyone else. How can we do what God has called us to do if we're so busy and yet so empty? God's word leaves us without excuse for our inaction. And if we are not doing God's word, if we are not following his commandments, and yet we're still so busy, haven't we missed something? Turn with me to James chapter 4. Because I, I, I like the, the sound of pages turning, and I like reading from the book sometimes. I'm sorry, James chapter 2. I'm going to start reading in verse 14. I do not have this on the screen. James chapter 2, verses beginning in 14, it says, Those, or excuse me, what use is it, my brethren? And these, he's talking to believers here, okay? We're not talking to unbelievers. We're not talking to, we're talking to believers. So me and to you. 
said, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister without clothing in need of daily food and one who says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is is what? Dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works, but show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe in shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? What not Ab- was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she was received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. This week, I've been wearing this around my wrist. Um, This is the closest thing I could find to sackcloth at Walmart that I could put around my wrist. And as I was reading this book last week, God challenged me to mourn over my sin, mourn over the fact that I have broken the heart of God. And I started the week doing that. And then as I started going into some of these stores, I started to, the Spirit of God started showing me the brokenness and the hurting around me. And I realized, and it just hit me, of how many times do I walk into Walmart where Aldi, I get my cart, I get my phone, I get my shopping list, and nine times out of ten, I get my calculator to make sure I don't go over budget. And then I walk aisle to aisle, grabbing this, checking it off. Next aisle, grabbing this, checking it off. Grabbing this, checking it off. Then I go into line. And if you're at Aldi, you know you're going to wait. And then I pull out my phone, and I check ESPN or Fox News until it's my turn. I put my phone away, put my cart, stuff on my cart, talk to the cashier. Hey, how you doing today? Awesome. Busy day? No? Okay, cool. Weather's good, right? All right, cool. Here's your total. All right, thanks. See you. Bye. I, I know I can't be the only person that does that. And God just challenged me. He said, how many times do you mourn the loss? And so my prayer this week has been, God, Break my heart for what breaks yours. And I've heard it my whole life, and I think God's just made it real reading through Matthew. I've heard it said that if God were to answer every one of your prayers, what would change more? The people around you, the world around you, or just your life? Are we praying those prayers? What are we focused on? And it just hit me of, God has called me to live a life of works, to live a life of good deeds. As much as I love Jesus, as much as I love His grace and His mercy, He has called me and saved me to live a life impacting people beyond me. 
And I love at CLF how we start every single Sunday. I love when Mark starts every Sunday giving the testimonies of what God has done in the lives of his people. It's scriptural. It's important. But man, why did God do that? To show his love for you, first of all, absolutely. But why else? To spurn us on to love and good deeds. And I just go, I I want our hearts to break for things beyond our discomfort in the moment. And I think so many times we get wrapped up in the discomfort where we're at in the moment that we miss out on what God wants to do through us. I think God is... Mark, John, and I had a great conversation last week about the, what God is doing in the lives of people here. I mean, God's doing some great things in the lives of his people here. He just is. And if you're not one of them, dig into God's word. And I firmly believe the reason God is moving and then changing the lives of his people is because we have put our focus on God's word this year. I really do. But I also believe the reason he is doing that goes beyond just you. I believe he's doing that to prepare you to walk out a life doing things. Doing things will not save you. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works, lest anyone should boast. However, you are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works. You have been created to do good works. We talk about why did God create humanity? Yes, to spend time. Yes, to have relationship. But he created you to do something. Are we doing something? What's the fruit of our lives? So how do we become that? How do we become good, good soil, good believers? If you're taking notes, here's the first thing. Absorb yourselves in the word of God. Saturate's another word I love. Saturate your life in the Word of God. I was talking to uh, our one another group a few weeks ago that one of the things I love to do, and I have great times when I do it every night, I have times that I don't do it for weeks at a time, so I'm not perfect at it, but I, when I went through all the stress, anxiety, panic attacks the first of this year, what made all the difference in the world is how saturated my life became with God's Word. I had note cards in my car. I had note cards by my bed that I would read every night before I went to bed. The last thing going in my head every single night, and I still have the note cards that I try to do. Again, not always perfect at it. But I was physically speaking the Word of God every single night. And I had note card after note card after note card that I would speak and recite because my mind it would hear it. My, my mouth would speak the word of God and my life was saturated in the word of God. I would listen to it on the way to work. I would listen to it on the way home. Not podcast, not sermon. It was the word of God because I knew there was power in God's word. And it changed me. I never took medicine for depression and anxiety. I use God's word for what he gave it to us for. Because the word God's word has the power to save your soul like we read. If it has the power to save our soul from eternal damnation, don't you think it could help with your anxiety? 
So if we want to produce good fruit, the first thing we have to do is absorb ourselves. Now, granted, it is a process. Roll Tide. Process. I re- uh, just finished a book by Kevin DeYoung called The Hole in Our Holiness, and I love this phrase. He said, progress is not only what God expects from you. So God expects you to progress. He expects you to learn and grow. However, He also allows it from me. Never once did God say, you're going to be finished here on earth. He called you to be perfect. He called you to be holy. He sets His expectation in His bar. But He also says, you won't be perfect, complete, until the day of Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 4, chapter 15, says this. It says, take pains. Take pains. And when you hear the word take pains, does that mean just, just do it in the mornings for a little bit? Take pains. I mean, work your butts off. Work hard. Take pains is what you hear Bob Harper on a DVD going, one more, again, do it again. Like, take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Progress, not perfection, progress, right? Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Preserve in these things, for as you do, this will ensure salvation both for who? Yourself and for those who hear you. If you've got your Bible, underline the word, take pains, work hard. Underline the word progress. Progress. People will see your progress, not your perfection, but your progress. You're not the same person you were a year ago, MJ, or Chrissy, or Benita, or Michelle, or Kelvin. Is your progress saying to those around you, I'm not the same person, the Spirit of God is moving in me. Underline, pay close attention. Are we paying close attention? Are we stopping? Are we thinking? Are we just checkmarked? Are we already thinking about dinner or lunch already? Preserve. I love the word preserve these things. Keep them fresh. Keep them good. When we do preserves, what are we doing? We're taking fruit. We're taking vegetables that would naturally go bad on their own. And we're doing things to make sure they last long term, right? Preserve these things in yourself. And then salvation. I love the word salvation. Because we do this for that simple reason. We do this for salvation for ourselves, and we do this for salvation of others. Second thing is this. Stay in the Word constantly. Stay in the Word constantly. Keep it in front of you at all times. Deuteronomy said, write it on the doorpost of your house. Write it on your arm. Keep it in front of you all the time, nonstop, day after day, hour after hour. Keep it fresh. Keep it in front of you. Psalm 119 is one of the best passages on the power and the impact the Word of God has in our life. Your Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, right? Keep the Word of God in front of you at all times. 1 Timothy chapter 4 says, In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and the sound doctrine which you have been following. It's a constant pursuit never being satisfied, constantly nourishing ourselves on God's Word. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. 
Third thing is this, live it out. Live it out loud. Live it out. Are we living out loud? Are we just worried about living out our spiritual life at church and then our quiet time each and every day? Can the people around us tell a difference in us? 2 Timothy 4.12, Paul tells Timothy, this young pastor, he says, in speech, in conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example to those who believe. Those who believe. Wait a second. That's not talking about those who don't believe. That means are you setting an example for the believers around you of the way you should act? And you want a checklist of, well, how do I do that? There's your checklist. How's my speech been this week? Why is that important? Derry, I'm going to throw you off. I'm going to go down about four slides. Why is that important? Matthew 12, 33. Wow, 27 through 33. This is, if you don't, this is a great, great passage to memorize. Matthew 12. Do I have it up there? See, I totally reversed the numbers. It's okay. Read this. Either make a tree good or its fruit and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brought a vipers, talking about the Pharisees. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of what which fills the heart. The mouth speaks what's in your heart. The man brings good out of good treasure that is good, and the evil man brings evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, every careless word, no such thing as a neutral word, every single careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. I'm pretty sure Jesus takes our words pretty seriously. Just saying. So back to, back to Paul's checklist. Are we being an example in speech? What about conduct, the life that we live, how we conduct ourselves? The love, how about the faith that we show? Are we worrying every single day? Anxiety and faith do not mix well. Either we trust God or we don't. We have faith or we don't. We have faith for our save our souls, but not faith that He'll provide for our car payment? That is not me encouraging you to go out and get a Tesla, okay? Just saying. Be wise. Fourth thing is this. Simply obey His Word. Obey His Word. If we want to be good servants, if we want to be good disciples, if we want to be good soil, if we want to truly follow Christ, we just simply obey his word. How hard is that? I don't know. If you've got your Bibles, open to uh, Matthew chapter 5. I gave you a handout. Hopefully everybody has one. We're not going to go through this in great detail. We're not going to verse-by-verse exegetical study. But, but Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 Jesus gives them the most famous sermon in human history. And I, I, what I did is, I, I, this is not an exhaustive list. This isn't, like I said, an exegetical study. But what I literally did, I said, what's the principle behind this overall thing? And I, do not take this. This is typed up by Brian Kraft. This is not the actual word of God. No one would understand that. Don't put this up and memorize what these say. Don't do it. These are words of man. Reflecting on the Word of God. Same thing with every other book. 
written by man outside of God's Word. So hopefully you can read these and then look back onto what Jesus said in His Word and get a better understanding of how to apply it. So I just want to hit on some of these. Um, Matthew ch- chapter 5. If you got your Bible, almost verse uh, 13. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled on underfoot by man. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Verse 16 says, let your light shine before men in such a way. That's so important. It doesn't just say, let your light shine. It said, let your light shine in such a way that they may see your good works. There's those words again, good works. Not your faith, not your attitude, not Jesus inside of you. That they may see what you actually do. Not what you talk about, what you actually do. They may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's one command inside the Sermon on the Mount. Just one. And how do we apply these? How do we obey God's Word? We go, okay... How can I take that simple verse, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven? Let's break it down. What about my marriage? How can I apply that verse to my marriage? If people were to walk into my house and follow me around for one week, every minute of every day, would they look at the way I treat my wife, the way I serve my wife, would they see what I do and go, God is good, I couldn't do what you do. Would they see your good works and praise your Father in heaven? Let's take that verse and apply it to our kids. How we treat and talk in discipline our kids would they see those works and praise God the way you do it? Let's go to our job. If I were to walk around and people who do not know Jesus were to walk around and follow you for your 8 to 10 to 12 hours a day at your job, would they see your integrity? Would they see your work ethic? Would they see how honest you were on the clock and go, would they praise God for who you are? you understand how like we get wrapped up in Revelation and one verse in this sermon that Jesus preached, not me, but Jesus preached, can go, how could that one verse just change our life? Does that make sense? Our, now, here's the deal. When we take that, not intellectually get it, but apply it to our life, when we start allowing God's word like this one verse, Matthew 5.14, if we, if we take that verse and all of a sudden we start treating our wives with more respect, we end up emptying the dishwasher and doing the laundry without complaining. We come home from work and we work harder when we get home than we do at our job. How would that change our life? How would that change our spouse's view of who God is? 
I was at a marriage conference one time, and the speaker said, uh, the hardest job you have, or the, the job that you work hardest at should be when you walk into your front door after work. You should work harder at your marriage and being a parent than you do even at your job. Throw that little nugget at you. Anyways, so that's one verse. Are we obeying it? Because see, what did Jesus say? If you don't obey it, you don't really love me. Do we understand the impact of this? Like this cannot, this Christian walk is not just pray a little prayer of salvation. I'm going to come down. I'm going to kneel at the altar. Mark, come pray with me. I'm going to pray a little prayer. Thank you. Give Pastor Mark a little hug. Walk back to our seat. And when we go back to our lives, are we living out his commandments? If we love God, if we call ourselves disciples, our lives should produce fruit of action, of good deeds, of work. Are they? Are our calendars so busy we say we don't have time? Do you think, let me see, let's just take a break. Let's use logic for a second. Reason. Micah loves that word, reason. Let's reason together. When I die and God says, why didn't you go out and feed that person? Why did you spend money on that Xbox game? Or why didn't you go out into the streets and preach my name last Thursday night? When I stand before God, am I going to pull out my calendar and go, God, you don't understand, you see? I was working till 6, and then I had to drive on 65 traffic. Do you know how crazy that traffic is, right? I mean, it took me like 45 minutes to get home. So then I get home super late. Then I was really hungry, so I sat down and had some lunch, and then I had to unwind. I had to unwind. So I had to sit down in front of the TV for a little bit and unwind, and by that time, it's like 8.30. I can't go out at 8.30. I have to spend a little bit of time with my wife saying hi. Well, some people say that. Or I have to spend a little bit of time doing laundry because I have to get my uniforms ready for tomorrow. But by that time, by the time I did laundry, it's like 9, 10 o'clock, and then I had to go to sleep because I have to get up at 4.30 in the morning. God, I just don't, didn't have time to do that. What do you think God's reaction would be? Brian, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize that your laundry was more important than my created being I made in my image. I'm sorry. I, I forgot you unwinding was more important than them spending eternity in hell. What excuse are we going to give before God one day when he said, I don't know you. Yeah, but God, we did this in your name. We did this in your name. He said, I don't know you. Those who love me do what I tell them to do. They obey my commandments. Do we even know them? Do we know them? Do we know the Beatitudes? Do, do we know the Lord's Prayer? Do we live it? Are our lives producing fruit of good works? Of good deeds? Like, do we love our enemies? Do we pray for them like Matthew 5 talks about? When we give, do we give in secret? Do we pray as Jesus outlines? Do we, are we storing up treasures here on earth rather than treasures in eternity? We can't serve God, both God and wealth. Are we worrying about our needs here on earth rather than trusting God for them? 
Are we seeking first our life and our comfort rather than God and his kingdom? I'm just walking through this list. We will stand before God one day. And he has given us everything. Everything. 2 Peter 1, 3. Everything. God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything. We have everything we need. The problem is we also have every excuse we need to justify a life so full in busyness that we don't have time to obey what he's commanded us to do. By the way, welcome to my journal over the past seven days. This is not me preaching at you. This is me preaching from me. What God is convicting me on. Challenge you, get one of these. You can buy a roll of this stuff at Walmart for $2, $1.98. Put it on your wrist and say, God, challenge me every time I walk into a store, a gas station, or work. Remind me of why I'm still here. What can I do to show these people who God is? Mike, you guys can come back up. Kevin DeYoung says this. He says, it is normal to feel less holy as you become more holy. Being more aware of sin in your life is usually a sign of the Spirit's sanctifying work in you, not of His withdrawal. Too many times we hear messages of admonishment and we take it and just... One of two things. First of all, we get aggravated or we just hit the tubes like I am such a worthless, pathetic, terrible person. And I don't think that's the point. Again, can I read Matthew chapter 5 for you? That's Mark. Jesus, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, I love that verse five or uh, verse five, blah, blah, chapter five, verses three and four. It says, "Blessed are the poor in spirit." This is how he starts the entire Sermon on the Mount. If you do any kind of exegetical study of the day, when a person speaks or writes, the first section sets up the entire rest of the message. It sets up the entire rest of the message. So, how does Jesus set up? The Sermon on the Mount. He's about to give his disciples an outline of a life to live. How does he set it up? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We need to get to the place where we are poor in spirit. Because what that means is, what do you, when you think of the word poor, what does it mean? Nothing. Nothing. Broken. Lost. Totally nothing. Bankrupt, right? When you think of poor, you think of bankrupt. What does poor in spirit mean? I'm completely and utterly without anything. Why is that a blessing? Because when you get to the end of yourself, when you get to the place where you are completely empty, lost, broken, gone spiritually, when there's nothing left, that's when the Spirit of the living God can breathe His life into you. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who mourn, for you shall be comforted. And I truly believe that we need to get to the place where we mourn the inaction. That we mourn how far we are from the life God has called us to live. 
And I don't just mean, oh, God, I feel so bad. I think I need to the altar and pray a little bit. There's mourning when I lost my dad at 23. It sucks. A lot. It hurts. There's a hole. Life will never be the same after that moment. Right? I want to feel that way with my sin. Because my sin breaks the heart of God. My inaction, my justification, my life that is so busy that I don't have time to do what He's called me to do, that breaks the heart of God. And I want to feel that. I want to mourn over that. But, I want you to understand one thing before, as we close. Ephesians 2, 8-10 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourself, is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, or masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that you would walk in them. And I just want to point out a few things. First of all, your salvation is not wrapped up in how well you perform and what you do. It never will be. Your salvation is only through the shed blood of Christ, your surrender to Him, and by His grace and mercy alone. That's it. That's your only salvation. That's your only hope of salvation. However, works is a way we can show the salvation that God brings to us. And I challenge you today to remember the words of Christ. If you love me, you will obey what I command you. Free gift is our response to God's gift of salvation should be our good works. Out of a love and service. Me being absorbed in God's word. I mean, really, if I truly am in love with my wife, my works are going to show it. How I talk is going to show it, right? If I never talk about my wife, if you never heard me talk about my wife, if I never did anything for my wife, you probably question it. But anybody who's hung around me knows I talk a lot about my wife. Because I love her. And my words and my actions show it. Not always. Like I said, I need this, I need this as much as you do. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, I worship you. God, I'm sorry. God, I'm sorry for all the times that I passed by a person on the road. I'm sorry of all the times that I took my receipt and left rather than turning around and talking to that person about Jesus. We're encouraging them with a, with a word from you. I'm sorry the times that when I got that bonus from work, I, I spent it on things I wanted rather than looking for a way that I could glorify you with that. God, I'm sorry when so many of my prayer times are about me and what I want and my comforts and my needs. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you don't leave us where we're at. 
I thank you that we can have hope of salvation, that we don't have to earn our salvation. We don't have to earn it, God. We don't have to do good works for you to love us more. I thank you that you love us for who we are. You love us where we're at. And I thank you that in the depth of our depravity, you reached down and saved us through Jesus. And God, I thank you that you will not allow us to live a life comfortable where we're at, that you will continue to spur us on, that you will continue to to push us to be everything you have called us to be because you want our good, not our comfort, not our just our happiness, God. You want us holy. And God, I pray this morning that this word has challenged our hearts to look beyond just ourselves, to look beyond just where we're at, just to look beyond where our comforts and our schedules are, God, and into the heart of God saying, God, who do you want me to do good works for? Whether it's my spouse, my kids, my boss, my coworkers, or the drunk on the street, God, who do you want me to be Christ to? God, help us look beyond ourselves. Help us understand that you have created us for good works. You've created us to obey your commands. God, I pray this week that you will put a burning, burning hot desire and a hunger into each one of our lives for your word. Help us dig in to the Sermon on the Mount. Help us dig into your word in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 this week. And I pray the Holy Spirit reveals things in our life, God, that we need to be doing that we need to be acting on, that we need to put into action what you have called us, that what you're doing in us. Because what you're doing in us doesn't end with us, Father. You want all men, not some, you want all men to be saved. And you want to use us in that mission. So Father, challenge our hearts. God, I don't think you're saying this morning out of anger, I think think that you put this on my heart because you love each and every person in this room. Because you want them to live in joy and fullness, God. And you say when we obey your commandments, that's when we live in your joy, in your peace, and live that joy to the full. Father, may they see your heart today of love, of compassion, of a father who wants what's best for his kids. Because you want our good, you want our best. Father, challenge our hearts and our minds today. Let this not just be another Sunday we come in, listen to a message, and go home. God, let this be the beginning of a life-changing work of the Spirit of the living God. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Thank you for your commands that we get to obey. May we do it out of a grateful heart, Lord God.